listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. If you're grieving, and if you're listening to this, there's a 99.9% chance that you are. Have you ever found yourself wishing that the world could just stop? Either because you can't conceive of a world that continues to turn without your person, or because you just need time, time to catch your breath, and time to figure out this new grief wilderness. For Rebecca Feingloss, the world sort of did stop. She got the call that her father had died suddenly, on the same exact day that her state went into COVID-19 shutdown. So, in some sense, the world did stop, but Rebecca didn't. She worked in education and was charged first with figuring out how to close and then how to reopen the school system. You know, easy, relaxing work. Her father's death, plus the pandemic, plus the unraveling of her marriage, led Rebecca to the end of 2021, where she looked around and realized she needed to make a major change. She was exhausted. Exhausted and unwell. She decided to take a year off of work and to focus completely on grieving. Now, Lots of us dream of taking a year or more off, and most of us can't. It's an extreme privilege to take a break from generating income to focus on your emotional, physical, and mental well-being. And Rebecca had the means to do so. During this year, she experimented with different ways of doing what most of us don't really love to do. She tried to feel her feelings and to really engage with grief. Grief wasn't new to Rebecca, as she was a teen when her mother had died of brain cancer but she hadn't given that loss much space. And thanks to the frenzy of COVID, she didn't have the time, space, or capacity to attend to the grief of her father's death or the end of her marriage. Rebecca termed her year off as her grieve leave. And 18 months later, grieve leave is now a full-fledged organization built to support others in learning to grieve all of their losses. Rebecca, welcome to Grief Out Loud. I'm looking forward to our time together today. Thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. I love what y'all do at the Dougie Center. I love this podcast and I'm so grateful to be here. Thanks, Jana. And there may be listeners who are already familiar with you and your story and with Grieve Leave, but just in case, um, can you tell us a little bit about your parents? I love talking about my parents. Um, They were incredible people. I think the first uh, way that I can start things out is by saying that I, as of uh, two days ago, I'm a 34 year old orphan. Um, but I became an orphan at age 30. I lost my mother to brain cancer. I was five years old when she was diagnosed and she died when I was 13. And I lost my father very suddenly in 2020, um, to pulmonary emboli, one in each lung, but my parents were absolutely incredible people. And even I'm reflecting right now and starting to tell you about them. I unfortunately started with their deaths, which isn't who they were. Um, my mother was the 
director of the Duke University Medical Center Library and wrote one of the first books on internet search engines. So she was a pioneer as library science, like got integrated into the internet age and she was brilliant. And my late father was a physician at Duke University. He was an endocrinologist and specialized in type two diabetes and supported people in North Carolina, but his research saved many people over the years. Um, and he was also, he was a man of many talents. My late father also collected minerals. It was like his lifelong hobby. And as part of his legacy, we donated his mineral collection to Harvard University that happened last year. Um, so that was a huge contribution to the scientific community. So my my parents were just really, really incredible people, brilliant, um, very sciencey. Uh, then my mother, she painted this and I have a lot of her art around too. She also was very visually talented too. They were amazing. It's interesting, Rebecca, I was biking home yesterday and I took a different route than I usually do. And I passed a truck that had a license plate and it said gem seeker. And now it seems huh? like perfect timing that that happened just before you and I were talking. <laughs> I love that. It's rocks and minerals. I don't think I have any around me right now. Um, I've been doing some redecorating in my home and I, I need to like put back out all of these rocks and minerals that I have in honor of my dad. But um, it's this amazing thing that he did. And it was like his thing growing up. We had a mineral room in our house and I thought that every child had that in their home, which is <laughs> it's not the case. Um, but after he died, I have found myself connecting so much more to rocks and minerals and like starting my own tiny little collection. It really wasn't until his death that I started paying attention to how cool it was that he did that. Um, it was always just like dad's thing, you know, but when someone passes, we want to honor them in all kinds of ways. And yeah, rocks, rocks and minerals were really my dad's thing. There's a mineral named after him, fine glossite. Really? <laughs> what does yeah, it look like? Story. It's ugly. <laughs> <laughs> he he was really into like rare minerals that were very, very small. And his collection had 10,000 mineral specimens in it. I mean, it was huge, but many of those minerals were microscopic in size. Some were larger. He also collected gems too. But fine glassite is like this tiny little like black thing. It's like a speck on another specimen and incredibly rare. Um, but he discovered seven brand new minerals over the course of his life. And the way he would talk about it is, you know, he really valued being a physician and really valued caring for other people. I think that's where I always got my drive in public service was from him really showing me that we care and serve other people in the fine gloss family. Um, but he really, he cared for other people in medicine, but viewed his contributions to the mineral community as the ones that would probably outlast his medicine contributions because medicine moves so quickly, but like the hard sciences move a little bit slower, like mineralogy. So anyway, more than you ever thought you would learn about <laughs> rocks and minerals in our interview today. I bet you didn't see that one coming. Absolutely did not. Um, <laughs> another thing that's just popping up for me too is, you know, in the recognition that your mom was diagnosed when you were five, and then you all lived with her brain cancer for eight years in your family. Are there things that your mother taught you during that time that you needed to know about how to live without her? 
here's what's really sad is brain cancer. Well, she had a glioblastoma, which is a death sentence. It is the deadliest form of brain cancer. I don't know where it ranks in all cancers overall in terms of its its deadliness, but it it will kill you. There's no cure for a glioblastoma. And I, I remember when my parents told me and my brother that mom had cancer, she had been having headaches a lot and eventually dad took her wherever to get a scan. And it's kind of a running joke in our family that mom got headaches all the time and we didn't know why. And I remember the moment we were standing in my parents' bedroom and I don't know if my dad or my mom told me and my brother, but they said, you know, mom has cancer. I didn't know what that meant. And I remember that my response to that statement was, well, can I still go to Beth's house on Friday? Like I, I knew it was a big deal because of the way they said it, but I didn't know what it meant and just wanted to know if I could still have the sleepover that was <laughs> scheduled for me. So I, when I think back to her diagnosis and then her deterioration over time, she lived a very long time, way, way longer than most people do with a glioblastoma. She was on many experimental treatments that Duke got her into and my father got her into, but I don't, we didn't really talk about what was happening, not in a way that I recall. And I think that is a little ironic considering how medical and informed my parents were. I remember maybe going to see a therapist once at early on in her diagnosis and I remember being told by my parents, well, the therapist says you're doing fine, so you don't have to go anymore. And to my knowledge, that's the only mental health support I ever had until I was 28 and went back into therapy, thank God, before my father died. I don't remember any conversations with my mother. I was too young about what life was going to be like for me eventually what life was like during the experience of her illness and deterioration. It just, we didn't talk about those feelings in our household. We were very, my father was a real kind of heads down, head down, do the work kind of person and like persevere through challenges kind of person. And my mother, frankly, was too unwell to be cognitively with it enough to have those kinds of conversations brain cancer is devastating and we couldn't really hold a conversation. So no, I didn't, I didn't have that vocabulary around any kind of like, this is what's happening in your life, Rebecca. And like, it just was the norm for us in my household growing up. It was normal for me that at home was a very scary place where mom was unwell. I don't think I even knew she was dying, but I just knew she was perpetually unwell and that that was my truth. And that when I went to school, I could put on a cute outfit and be very good in class and do very, very well and have lots of friends and do theater or go to dances or do whatever. But it was the home life that was persistently scary and bad and not at all talked about. 
And did that bifurcation kind of of existence continue for you after your mom died? Totally. It was what was always rewarded for me. It, I think there's also like, I, now I have the vocabulary for it, of course, because I, I write about and talk about and founded an organization focused on grief and grieving. But what I didn't recognize at the time is I had eight years of anticipatory grief prior to my mother dying, even though I didn't totally recognize that she was going to die. I really, truly thought she was just going to be sick forever. But when she died, it was almost like a relief for our family. That burden was lifted. Everyone It sounds awful to say, but everyone was just a little happier, I think, in my family. My father, his whole personality changed after my mother died. He was much lighter. And I think that lightened things for me and my brother, too. But I, we were rewarded in our household for being academically successful. And every award I got at school, every kudo I got for being a good friend or being a performer at school was, you know, another accolade that made me feel good. And there was never any discussion of grief or feelings outside of I'm, I'm Jewish outside of our annual um, visits to synagogue on the anniversary of my mother's death. And we did go to synagogue every Shabbat, every Friday for a year after she died. But other than that, there, there really just wasn't discussion. I wrote about my mom's death for my college essays. It was like the thing that I overcame. It was the challenge that I overcame. We were not talking about our feelings. We were not talking about grief in our household. I think it was too painful for my father to even discuss. Yeah, and then you as his child are hitting all the like markers of okayness externally, right? So like, phew, go. job well done. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I and I don't want to knock it, right? Like, I think, I think he needed me to be well, so he felt better. And I think and my, my father was a wonderful father. And he was my best friend. I mean, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for all of the support that I got um, from him. And I also recognized that there was a lot of pressure on me to do well uh, in air quotes, right? Whatever that meant academically, personally, professionally in school and beyond, because he, I really wanted to be a great daughter. And I, I wanted things to just go well for us after we had faced such a, a hard decade so take us to 2020 then. So here you are, like Rebecca is achieving and doing well and all of, all the things are happening. And then 2020 hits and other things are happening in the world as well. Uh, but things are happening in your personal world in terms of your dad dying right at the beginning. What happened then? Yeah. So in between there, you know, I graduated from Duke University. I joined Teach for America. I went to graduate school at the University of Chicago. I worked for the mayor's office in Chicago. I came home to North Carolina to be closer to my father. I got married in there somewhere. Um, I worked for state government in my home state of North Carolina and ran early childhood policy for the state. I was incredibly proud of the work that I was doing. I worked very hard to get where I was. 
And on the same day that I was called into our state emergency operations center to plan for how we were going to shut down schools in North Carolina on March 14th, 2020. And I called my father on the way in to that meeting. And he told me, I told him what I was going to go do. And he said, that's incredible. I love you. I'm so proud of you. And two hours later, he was dead. I got the phone calls. Um, he was remarried. I got multiple phone calls from his wife while I was literally leading a meeting. And someone flagged my phone to me and said, hey, your phone's been ringing. And that was, I stepped out to take the call. And it was the worst, the worst moment of my entire life. And it changed everything for me. It, my father's death was so sudden and so unexpected. And it was at, to your point, it was that probably the worst possible time that that could happen, where not only did my father die, who was my rock, pun intended, minerals and rocks, I guess, <laughs> but he was my rock. And I had no more anchors in this world because it was COVID. We were in the middle of lockdown. Everything locked down that day. We were the first funeral that the funeral home and funerals in quotes, we were the first burial, I'll say, in the COVID era of the funeral home. And they had to figure out what we were going to do. We couldn't have a funeral for him. We buried him with a handful of us. My brother drove in from Canada. It was wild. But his death reset everything in my mind and made me question what I was doing every single day. I went back to work a month after his death to do everything that I could to help our state. And at that point, figure out how we were would eventually reopen schools. That became my job. At some point along the way, I realized my marriage was failing. And I hate, I don't even want to use that language. I don't, I don't think it was a failure, but when you are in lockdown with someone, you really recognize that it's what's not working is just staring at you in the face. Um, so a year after my father died, I decided to end my marriage and really started to focus on what I needed to do for me to take care of me and my wellness and my happiness. Because everything that I thought was consistent in my life everything changed. And for all of us during COVID, I'm not alone in that. It just was particularly acute for me in losing my last living parent and in my marriage ending and with COVID. By the end of 2021, I I don't want to get ahead of where we're going in this conversation, but I, I made some pretty big decisions to take a big 180 in my life and, and make some big changes. Uh, Rebecca, before we, you know, travel around the bend to that 180, I was wondering, you know, you talked about when your mother died, right? There really wasn't a lot of space or recognition or language for grief. And so probably any emotions connected to that got a bit disembodied. Then your father died right when the rest of the world was like, oh, hey, I relate to the world, the word grief. I'm grieving that I can't go to my friend's bachelorette party. I'm grieving that, <laughs> you know, it was everywhere. And I, I think that was, there was a bit for folks who were grieving the death of a person that were like, oh, finally, y'all understand. But also like, hey, that's our word. And like, it's, uh, you know, diminishing what it means to us. Like there were some pieces there that were a bit dissonant for folks. 
but anyway, my question, sorry, that was a long tangent, but my question mm-hmm. around that is what did grief feel like for you as an adult after your dad died in a way that maybe you couldn't access or connect to after your mother died? Yeah. It's two totally different griefs because I don't even think I can say these words without crying. I I felt like my heart got ripped out when my dad died and that it's, it never came back. Like my heart's still not there. His death destroyed me because I knew him so well. We were just so like deeply connected. He was my, he was my person. I talked to my father every day. We were very, very close and I trusted him and he trusted me. And it was a beautiful father-daughter relationship. And so his death and that grief is just like this feeling of the taking away of something I knew so well, the like cutting off of like my, my arm is how it feels ripping out my heart. Versus the grief from my mom, I didn't know her. And I would say my grief for her has changed the older that I get. As a child, I now recognize it as grief. But then I was just like jealous of people who had moms and had moms who made lunches for them. I remember I was six, so she was in the throes of fighting cancer. And I remember complaining, mom, you don't make me lunches to take to school. And like Sally's mom draws on her sandwich bags every day. Why don't you draw on my sandwich bags? Why don't, why do I have to make my own lunch? Um, And why don't you draw my sandwich bags? And I remember she she like took the time to draw like a little something on a sandwich bag for me when I was six. But like my grief then was, it was jealousy. It was like, I didn't get what the other kids had in a normal family dynamic. And the older I've gotten, it's been more of like this longing to get to know who she was as an adult and not have gotten to know her through like other people's memories of her. I think now as an adult, there's so many questions that I wish I could ask her. That's where my grief is now. I'd love to ask her about her decision to have children, to start trying to have children at age 35 and to have her first child at 38 and her second, me, at 40. I want to know about that. I want to know about what it was like to to write a book I want to know what it was like for her to lead a massive organization at Duke. And I never, I will never get to ask her those questions. So that, that grief is a a longing for the complete unknown, totally different from my grief for my dad. I'm reminded of a conversation I had with Dr. Mary Pluff many, many years ago. And she talked about when a child has a parent die, there's like the grief for the, well, she was talking about mothers who had died, the grief for the mothering, the grief for a mother, and a grief for your mother. And it seems like that sort of hits on those different places. When you're six years old, and you want that mothering, like draw my lunch bag. And then you want like <laughs> a mother. 
And now you want your mother, you want to talk to your mother and get those questions answered. 100%. And it's, it's like, I don't even, I don't even know what I'm missing because I never got that. You know, what's interesting too, is it's only been since losing my dad that now I think my grief for my mom has really come into high gear. And because everyone is unfortunately gone in my family in my, my year of grieve leave last year, I lost my last remaining grandparent, my mom's mom. So that was like the last little connection that I had to my mom of a person who knew her in that familial kind of knowing way. Not obviously I'm connected with her friends still, but it's only been since everyone's been gone that I think I, I am now coming face to face with my grief for her. And that the way you described it is like for a mother or to like wishing I had been mothered or missing my mother. I think that really resonates right now as I dive into so many of these feelings that have been really untouched by me because they had been way too scary that now I realize I have to spend time uncovering. Yeah, the vault has been opened and you can't close it back up again in the same way. So so let's go around the bend, our 180 degrees. So you like survive 2020, you survive 2021, barely. barely. <laughs> you get to the end of 2021 and you're like, full stop, something's got to change. Uh, so yeah, this is, listeners, this is what we're getting to the grieve leave part. So tell us about that. Like, how did you get there? Yeah. After I ended my marriage, it was, that was a, a big moment for me of recognition that I was seeking to be in control over my well-being and that no one was going to be able to save me except for me. I am the only person who can save me. If I am unhappy, I have to take action. Or if I am unbalanced or if I feel unwell, it is on me to work to be well. It was not a spouse's responsibility. It was not a parent's responsibility. That's on me. And by the end of 2021, I was so empty. I was exhausted. And I had spent that time since ending my marriage and since now being orphaned, I'd spent that time really thinking about what do I need to do to be well? What am I, what am I doing in my work that's not fulfilling enough to me? I'm supporting millions of people across North Carolina every day. Like that's a very fulfilling role that I loved. And yet I felt awful inside. And it ultimately became very clear to me that it was grief that I had never explored for the death of my mother 20 years before the death of my father at that point, just a year and a half before. And then new grief from ending that marriage, even though that was my choice, still grief there. And I made the decision. It was such a privilege to be able to make this decision to say, I'm going to take some time away from work, away from my daily life. um, And I am going to stop. I'm going to figure out what it means to grieve because I've never done it before. And I think we tell people 
like when they lose somebody to take all of the time that you need. Like that's such a common phrase. People, I'm sure we hear that all the time. And my goal of taking a year was to figure out what are we supposed to do when we take that time? Does it mean to take all the time you need to do what? Like, what is it? What does it even mean to grieve? What does it mean to process all of these losses? And it was my goal in taking a year off, which is ultimately what I decided to do, to spend every single day of 2022 grieving. And I would actually like come face to face with grief for my mom and grief for my dad and grief for my marriage and grief for this COVID world and wrestle with those feelings and sit with them. I also sought out travel in that year and doing different kinds of activities in my research of like what it meant to grieve. And I wrote about it along the way because in my mind, I just, I had a feeling I wasn't the only person who felt really lost in their grief. And I hoped that if I wrote about what I was experiencing and what I was feeling and what I was discovering about my grief, that someone else out there might resonate with those feelings from the grief buffet that I unfortunately have. And so I blogged about it for the entire year and founded a website called the whole thing Grieve Leave because in I needed a name for it. And I loved that. I loved that it rhymed, former kindergarten teacher here. Um, <laughs> And it it just needed a name and it described what I wanted to do in the year. So that that was the impetus for grief leave. I had I was just exhausted, Jana. And I needed to do something big about it. Uh, what's kind of fascinating to me is that for the storyline of like I got to the place where I was so exhausted that I needed to take a break from work and do more grieving, which most people are like, grieving is exhausting. <laughs> which is work. <laughs> right. right, right, right. But I didn't even know. Like, I didn't really know what I was getting myself into because it was more of just like, I know that I feel terrible and tired. And I know that I have a lot of unresolved grief and a lot of unresolved feelings I've never spent time on. And it was just this big gamble that like maybe if I did that work, to your point, on myself, that it might actually pay off mm. in the long run. But to be totally honest with you, I slept a lot in 2022. I was in a big old sleep deficit <laughs> from like decades of careers that are 24-7 and you're sleeping in that year too. Don't get me wrong. So what what are some of the things, if they're tangible things, that you did that to you really spoke to this idea of getting into relationship with grief, basically? So I'll tell you my favorite thing that I did um, is I went on a road trip across the country by myself, which to me was about two kind of central themes. One was getting quiet and just spending time alone. I am an extrovert by nature. I love people, always have. But I also knew that it was when I was alone that those scary feelings that I'd never confronted when I was alone and when I was quiet, I could actually like hear those thoughts and sit with them and face them. 
and a road trip alone, just with my two dogs in the back seat with me, was a a powerful way to just spend time with myself and listen to all of those thoughts. And the other piece of that road trip was to spend time in nature and get some perspective on myself by visiting beautiful places and landscapes that just help me see the world in a different way. Like to me, a road trip across the country meant that I could unsettle myself in a good way. It's like when I could remove myself from my daily life here in Durham, North Carolina, I could actually get some perspective on how I was feeling. I road tripped to ultimately Tucson, Arizona for the annual gem and mineral show (laughs) that we used to go to every year as children um, because it's a a special, meaningful place to, to my family. So I drove my RAV4 out there, made many stops along the way, kind of went up to Colorado to a national park and then back across the country and took about two weeks to do it. It was incredibly empowering. I got a speeding ticket first in my life, (laughs) Uh, but it was, it was so impactful to me. Like there were so many moments on that road trip that I either just totally turned the radio off to just think and just sit with whatever I was feeling, or I'd see a beautiful view of something and I would turn off all the sound in my car and just cry and just think about my dad and think about my mom because it would just be very like in a good way, very overpowering in that moment of seeing this natural beauty, these views of mountains in Colorado, for example, that I just felt my parents with me. And it was that road trip that like getting alone and sitting by myself for so long that helped me realize that I'm always connected with them. That road trip across the country meant the world to me. It was the beginning. It was at the beginning of my year of greed leave. And it, it helped me recognize that if I was going to get in touch with how I was feeling that I needed to spend time alone and I needed to get quiet for the first time in my life and just listen to what was there all along. That's also another big lesson I think in the year is I set out to figure out what it meant to grieve and all of it it just became so clear at the beginning that actually I had it in me all along. I just needed to slow down and get quiet and listen to what was already in my head and in my heart. That's one thing that comes to mind, but I did tons of things throughout the year. Some of them involved travel. I also, I went to England and my brother and I cleared out our great aunt's house who had also passed away. We went through all of her belongings and sorted through memories. I organized every single family photo Uh, that exists in the Feingloss family um, from actually from both sides, my mom's side and my dad's side. I sorted through digital files too um, from my marriage and actually like sat face to face with the feelings associated with each of them. Again, photos is an obvious one of pressing delete on things that needed to go, but sitting with the feelings with them along the way. 
And a fun one is I followed the Duke basketball team, the Duke men's basketball team on their journey to the final four that year in honor of my late father who loved Duke basketball. I got to spend time doing something that he really loved um, and go just think about him in a way that was also fun for me. Um, But there was a ton of crying that year. There was also a lot of laughter. I also met so many people along the way and all of the different things that I did throughout the year to help me learn that I am not actually the only person who has ever felt this way. Even though in our grief, it can like trick us into thinking that this is like your painful secret. No one can ever relate to you, but actually we all grieve all the time. Um, I volunteered as a camp counselor at experience camps and actually felt like totally normal for the first time in my life where everyone around me, campers and counselors had pretty much all lost parents. And that meant the world to me, just building that community. So I wasn't so alone, but that's what the year was like. Every single day was doing something, painting, writing, listening to music, traveling, um, reading, and it was incredible and powerful every single day. I'm thinking back on what you said about that. The grief was always there. We just needed to slow down and get quiet enough to like pay attention to it. And I, I'm, I'm sitting with that because so often people say, I never grieved for, I never fully grieved for. And the part of me that always wants to say that grief's in there. <laughs> You're just maybe not paying attention to it or turning the volume up or slowing down long enough to like notice it. But I'm like, once something has changed or someone has died, the grief is there. It's just hanging out. A hundred percent. And it's, and it's that America in particularly like doesn't reward people for slowing down and actually recognizing that that grief is there. It's hard to talk about. It's scary. It forces us to confront our own mortality, which we don't want to do. But I mean, that grief is there. You're absolutely right. Whether we want it to be there or not, when we lose somebody, we change. Our feelings about life will change. Again, whether we recognize those feelings are there or not. So I know one of the other big topics we wanted to talk about today was about, you know, how do we incorporate some of the things that you learned through your grieve leave for folks who maybe don't have the opportunity to do what you did. You know, it seems important to name, like there's gotta be a certain level of economic advantage, a certain level of solo advantage, not caring for children, things like that, uh, to be able to take that time out. And so I know some of the work you're doing now is like, how do I take what I've learned and bring that into an environment where people don't have the ability to be a press pause on their life for a year. And by their life, I mean the money generating part of their life for a year. What are some of your thoughts moving forward with that? Yeah. Thank you so much for asking that question. It is an important one. Like, would I recommend to people, hey, quit your job and go grieve for a year? No, no, I can't possibly recommend that. That doesn't make sense. And it is not feasible. And I recognize the amount of privilege that I had to be able to take that space. And I am so grateful for it. And I feel 
particularly driven to take what I learned in that year of grief leave and beyond to now help other people explore their own grief that is already inside of them. Um, so I founded an organization, grief leave, keeping the rhyming words going here, <laughs> um, that is focused around educating particularly young adults on what grief is and how we recognize our feelings around all kinds of losses, whether that is a death of a loved one, whether that is a medical diagnosis, whether that's grief and moving across the country, it could be grief from divorce or breakup. Um, again, all of the grief that all of us have from the pandemic that we might not recognize we are grieving, but all of us, every single person in the world lost a sense of normalcy in the pandemic. And Grieve Leave is about bringing people together virtually and in person to talk about our losses. Um, we host events, we host, we're calling them Meet and Grieves, um, which are our way of reinventing the idea of a grief support group for the next generation and bringing people together to talk about grief and loss online and in person um, in ways that feel really approachable and accessible. Um, we um, interview folks who have faced all different kinds of losses um, and we share their takeaways online too. Um, and we're building a community. We're now at, at thousands of people who are connected to Grieve Leave online on social media, on our website um, and coming to our events all to learn from one another and to find this common ground that you are not alone in your grief at all. And that if we can all talk about our grief more, then we can create, to quote the Dougie Center, we can create a more grief-informed world, a more grief-informed society by actually just naming the fact that we are grieving, that it is not a medical disorder. This doesn't have to be like a clinical thing. It can just be this human thing that all of us grieve. And that's our mission. We um, started out just at the beginning of this year in 2023. We are very much growing Grieve Leave as an organization. But I am so excited. It gives me a real sense of purpose every day to keep talking about grief and grieving and to continue to help people my age, the people who are younger than me, um, to know that they are just absolutely not alone when so much of our society wants to tell us that grieving is taboo and that talking about things that are sad or hard is taboo. We can all feel a little bit more connected, a little bit more normal when we just talk about grief because grief is totally normal. So that's what we're doing with Grief Leave. And um, I'm so excited about it. I can't wait to see how we continue to grow. I just realized as we were having this conversation that some folks might hear like, oh, like you did all your grief in a year. And it wrapped it up. Mm -hmm. End point. Like done. You did all the activities. You got your A plus. You graduate. Mm -hmm. Here's your certificate. So in our last couple of moments, just wondering what's something you find yourself doing on the daily or on the weekly now 
to continue to build that relationship with your grief? Can I tell you that it is ironically harder for me right now, emotionally, like today in my grief than it was even a year ago on my year of grief leave. Because now what I have learned about grief and myself is that I will always be grieving always forever for the rest of my life. Figuring out what works for me to process how I am feeling in my grief and actually like integrate that into my daily life, not on a special year of travel and of writing and being very public and open about my daily experience. Now I get to just be Rebecca who is grieving every day and also working and also founding a company and also, you know, living at home and just leading a normal life. It's really hard. I am working on those systems for myself and reevaluating what keeps me feeling balanced and not get too low in my grief. To me, that is meditation and yoga. To me, that looks like exercise in a really routine way. To me, that also looks like taking time to read instead of scrolling on, I don't know, TikTok and Instagram, (laughs) which I love, but I can get really sucked into that doesn't actually give me the quiet and the mental space those things give me an escape. And I, in some ways, even in my year of grieve leave, there were moments that I think I was looking for an escape. Now, what I continue to learn over and over again is there is no escaping grief. It's going to be here. And it is my job to care for myself and figure out how I can integrate just good self-care practices every day so I can live with that grief and it doesn't overpower me anymore. And I'm proud of the work that I've done on myself so far. I know I have a lot of work to still do. And I'm proud of what we're putting into the world through Grieve Leave and the education that we're doing to help other people create that space for themselves to sit with their own grief. But I am a learner and participant in our community just as much as anybody else is. The journey continues, Jana. Like that journey is not over for me and it never will be. And that is okay. I'm getting the image of like a fire hose, you know, of grief. Turn that on, it's just like going. Or you can make a soaker hose where you just poke little tiny holes in that hose and then the water just sort of seeps out slowly over time uh, and totally. figuring out like how do I have uh, you've used the word balance a few times today of the idea of like we don't grieve so much that we stop grieving right it doesn't work that way but we also can't just like be in the grief immersion endlessly and how do we have some breaks and so we can do both right and so I'm appreciating uh, you're helping me think through that this after this morning in this conversation you're, you're so spot on. Like it's, I I am trying to get out of a like happy, sad binary that I, in my mind, I am trying to unlearn that I'm not doing well unless I feel happy all the time. And that's actually just not true. That's not how humans are. I am 
a complex set of emotions and I don't have to be happy all the time to be well. I can be balanced in having feelings of happiness in a given day and joy and excitement. And I can also feel and recognize my grief in a given day. But a good day should have a range of emotions associated with it in a way that is not overwhelming, in a way that I can handle on a daily basis. And that doesn't mean that like, let's use a day versus a week, right? Like in a given week, I might feel overwhelmed in my grief one night, one morning. It tends to be nights that get me. I get really in my feelings at night. And maybe I'll have a rough night and that's okay. Because now I have more of the tools that can help me work through how I feel. So then it's not to go back to your fire hose analogy. It's not like I was stepping on the fire hose and it kind of building up (laughs) over time. That's what my life used to be like, that I just wouldn't let any of that water out until it just exploded. But now I think you're exactly right. I can poke holes and let some of that energy out over time in ways that are it's manageable for me and recognizes that that grief is there, that water is there in the hose, and that is okay. Well, Rebecca, now that listeners want to come join you in your Soaker Hose community of Grieve Leave, can you let us know yeah. how to how to find you? I'll put it in the show notes, but it's helpful for folks just to hear it too. Yes. You can visit www.grieveleave.com. You can also find us on all social media platforms that I love to scroll at Grieve Leave. Um, we are active on Instagram, especially, but you can also find us on Facebook. I am on TikTok, Rebecca Feingloss at our Feingloss. And you can also find me on all those other social media platforms too. But we are very easy to find. And we want to be easy to find for people who are looking for that community of fellow grievers facing all different kinds of losses. We are here. Well, thank you, Rebecca, for sharing that with our listeners and for having time in your schedule today to talk with me, to share some of your uh, your tears and some of your heart that has been ripped out of you and to share that with me, but also just for the work you're doing and the kind of the, the purpose you're bringing to this idea of how do I invite more people into this realm of talking about grief, because that's what we do here too. So I'm just really grateful for your time today. Thank you so much, Jenna. And I mean, the Dougie Center is incredible. Y'all teach me a lot about grief and grieving and how we can continue to talk about it. You're amazing. And I felt really comfortable and I feel grateful for this conversation. So thank you. And listeners, I say it each and every single time, but thank you for tuning in, for making the show mean what it does, for sharing episodes with people who might be helped by what we're talking about. If you want to talk to me, please send me an email. You can reach me at griefoutloud at dougie.org, which is D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G. It's also our main website where you can find information about our local programming, information about programs that are similar to ours around the country and the world, tons of free downloadable tip sheets and activity sheets, and each and every episode of Grief Out Loud. We are always excited to share that Grief Out Loud is sponsored in part by the Chester Stefan Endowment Fund. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you'll join us again next time.